pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Good morning. This is David Heldon. You're listening to the Saturday Morning Show. And I hope everybody is enjoying the weekend so far. We've got nice, sunny weather. It is cooling up a little bit. You can almost uh, smell it in the air like uh, like winter is coming. Fall is coming. Some of you may not want to hear that, but uh, you can you can tell that the changes of seasons are occurring. Yesterday, 9-11, we had out in Massillon. They had a celebration. Steve Tuey, president of Operation Flags of Freedom. And if you know Steve, he has a lot of, he's got thousands of flags that he can post for various events. And he was out at the PBS Animal Health uh, Center yesterday, and they were celebrating uh, the commitment and the efforts that so many of the first responders had made back on September 11th. So we really want to uh, recognize Steve Tuey and all those that were recognizing out in Massillon uh, the 9-11 event yesterday because we none of us can forget that day and what a, what a, what a tragic day it was. And at the same time, I think what was such a great thing is that people came together. And that's certainly what we need more of today, people coming together. At the same time yesterday between 9 a.m. and noon, the city of Canton was testing the shot detection system that they have. And uh, so if you were hearing gunshots between 9 a.m. and noon yesterday in the city of Canton, there is no need to be alarmed because they were shooting blanks. They were shooting blanks. The police were shooting blanks yesterday between 9 a.m. and noon yesterday. And that was simply to test their shot detection equipment. And what they do with the shot detection equipment is that when there is a regular uh, gunfire that goes off at any time, they are able to hone in, find where that gun was fired, and make an immediate response. And they've seen all across the country when you utilize this system that it actually lowers the crime in that area because really what they're able to do is to quickly address shots that are being fired. They're able to do it in a very systematic and uh, effective manner. So that's good news out there in the city of Canton. And at the same time, the city of Canton will be distributing, starting on Monday, tomorrow, they will be distributing the 95-gallon waste containers Every resident in the city of Canton will be getting a 95-gallon waste container, a wheeled cart, a wheeled cart, which will make it much easier for residents to take their trash out. You won't have to carry the bags. You will not have to drag the garbage can out. You can just put all the waste in one container with a connected lid, and you have a wheeled cart. Now, I remember when 
actually most all of the residents in the townships have wheeled carts. Most all of the cities, actually all of the cities uh, in the three county area, Stark, Tuscarawas, and Wayne, uh, have the wheeled carts. And now the city of Canton's going to have the wheeled carts. And then on top of that, we have smoke that is coming to this area. When you look at the wildfires that are out west there in California, it is actually having an impact here locally. So the Kansas City Health Department, they are actually responsible for measuring the air quality in the Stark County area. And uh, Linda Morkel, I worked with Linda for a number of years. Linda Morkel is monitoring and inspection supervisor for the Canton City Health Department, Air Pollution Control Division. She said uh, this past Friday she's seeing an increase in level of particulates in Canton's air. And that's likely due to the fire. Fires that are taking place out there, out west in California and Oregon. Uh, also, meteorologist uh, Zach Sekovic said his office right here in the Cleveland area first detected smoke around Tuesday. So we certainly aren't going to see the level of fog and uh, haziness that you see out there in California and Oregon, but uh, they are saying that we could see some spectacular sunsets with the additional particulate debris. Right now it's at a level of 68, which is a moderate level, and uh, certainly we're not going to see uh, the level of smoke that is out there in uh, in the west, but we might be slightly impacted by that. At 9.05 today, we're going to have Judge Taryn Heath and Lisa Williams. She is the court administrator for the Honor Court. And what's really nice about the Honor Court is they are seeing great success. So when you have a veteran, uh, they've had this court for the past 10 years when there is a veteran that has a felony due to a drug-related crime or a mental health issue. They started the honor court, and what they do is they bring those individuals in and they give them the help that they need, and they have seen great, great success over the past 10 years. So we're going to have them on the line today at 9.05. And then at the 10 o'clock hour, we're going to have Secretary of State Frank LaRose is going to be on the show. And uh, we're going to get to ask him about the mail-in ballots. And they got a little bit of a court battle going on right now as to whether or not uh, uh, individuals can send in their requests and their ballots via the email or fax. And I know that one of the challenges that has been presented by the Secretary Frank LaRose is that they're just not set up for that type of uh, submission of ballots. So we'll be able to talk with Frank LaRose about submission of absentee ballots, uh, requests for absentee ballots, and whether or not we'll be able to vote electronically. And that's coming up at the 10 o'clock hour. Uh, also, we have out there a lot of you. Well, actually, every house in Stark County received their recycling newsletter. Uh, and if you haven't received it, you will be receiving it. We had uh, in the recycling news, the good the good news about recycling is that in Jackson Township, even though they closed their recycle center, uh, the 
about two weeks ago, they added four new unmanned recycling drop-offs. So it was really a nice convenience for the past 37 years that all the residents in Jackson Township could drive up, drop off their recycling, and they had personnel that were available in order to take your recycling out. They'd separate it, they'd bundle it, and they'd sell it. And uh, But right now, the commodity prices for recycling have been so low that they just could not afford to continue to operate. And so now they have four unmanned recycling drop-offs in the city of Canton. One is right there just in front of the high school or the Jackson Barn, as many of the residents in that area uh, see. It's right on Fulton Road. You can see the recycling containers there. Also, the Real Hope Church, which is just south of the intersection of Wales and Strausser. They have a recycling drop-off in their church parking lot. Strausser Elementary. Strausser Elementary also has a public recycling drop-off behind the school there. Nice, beautiful elementary school. Have to drive a little bit. Uh, They have a nice long road that gets back behind the elementary school, but there's a drop-off there as well. And then at the Jackson Middle School, they now have a full-service drop-off at the Jackson Middle School. So, Four new locations in Jackson in order to allow people to recycle. You know, one question that we have, and um, and John, I don't know if you've been aware of this, but when you have uh, the recycling drop-offs, we put all new decals separating the recyclables, right? And we have a number of residents that were calling in, and they were saying, we notice that the recycling district has all those items separated but you're putting them in the same truck and they thought that there was something like uh, something bad going on there that why do we have the residents separate those recyclables but then you come along and you pick it up in the same truck any guess why any guess why we do that john no i do not have a guess (laughs) (laughs) I'm 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 still uh still getting into the day, but go ahead. All right. So the reason we do that is that um, we know that when we have a separate paper for cardboard, people put in cardboard. When we have a separate paper for paper, people would put in paper. To the extent that ninety five percent was clean with cardboard only or paper only. When we had in the past the commingled, what they'd call the mixed recycling or the commingle. Mm-hmm. Everybody could put their plastic, their metal cans, steel cans, aluminum, glass, all in one same bin, right at the same drop-off. Okay? What do you think the contamination rate on that was? Was it 10%, 15%, 50%, or over 65%? I'll say 50%. Very close. It was over 65% contamination Mm. when we had the mixed recycling. Now, the thing is, is you look at the sites and you have the same people dropping off the paper, cardboard, and mixed recycling. But yet, Slesnicks that takes the paper were reporting a 95% clean rate. Whereas the Kimball company that takes the commingles, they were reporting a 65% contamination rate. So what we did is we put new labels and we asked specifically in the, on the bins for metal and aluminum cans in one bin, plastic bottles and jugs in another bin, glass bottles and jars in another bin, 
And guess what? We've seen over the past two months, the recycling clean rate has been impressive. So it's working. It's working. That is the reason why we know that when we are very specific with our committed recyclers, that we just get clean recycling. So we're asking residents to separate it at home. We're asking residents to separate the material at the drop-off. And we are seeing numbers that are just very, very impressive. And uh, that just allows the program to be more sustainable in the future because we don't want garbage in there. Keep it clean, empty, and dry. So we want to thank our residents that had called and asked about that. Uh, but that's the reason. And so in the city of Canton, 95-gallon waste containers. Do you, ha- you live in an apartment, John. Yep. So you don't have the wheeled cart. No, we do not. And, um, you know, the wheeled cart, sometimes people say, oh, they're so big. But actually, the footprint of the cart is really, you know, much less than two smaller garbage cans. They're a little bit bigger at the top. And the good thing is, is if you have a lot of waste in your garbage can, you got those wheeled carts. So it's really easy to take the trash to the curb. Now, what if you live in an alley in the city of Canton? There were some concerns about that. Well, they're going to have a special collection for those people that are in a narrow alley or a hard-to-reach place. But uh, Mayor Tom Bertamy and City Council have made the commitment they're investing well over a million dollars in new containers to make trash collection much safer. Because it is, if you remember from last week, John, one of the 10 most dangerous jobs in the United States, according to the U.S. Labor Statistics, is waste and recycling collection, number five on the list, number five on the list. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to be talking about stress, and we're going to be talking about the best ways to handle stress. There are seven ways that are suggested that we can handle stress, and I'm sure that all of us could find better ways to handle stress. So stay with us, and we'll be back. Good morning, this is David Held, and you're listening to News Talk 1480 WHBC. And uh, I've got a number of things that are going on this morning. We've got the city of Canton that are going to start distributing their 95-gallon waste containers coming up this next week, September 14th, actually till like the 25th. And so it's really going to be nice for the city of Canton. You have most all of the waste collectors out there in the country today that use the 95-gallon containers. And uh, you're not going to see rolling garbage cans going down the street or rolling lids in the city of Canton anymore. And it'll actually limit the amount of litter as well. Because oftentimes you get dogs, cats, raccoons that get into garbage bags, rip them open, and you got a big mess on the street. Well, with these new 95-gallon containers... You're not going to see the animals getting in uh, to those bins. And uh, so it's going to be a lot cleaner in the city of Canton when they get these 95-gallon containers out there. And uh, there's always an adjustment at first, but, you know, we've seen not only throughout Stark County, but also throughout the state of Ohio and across the country that that is really the safest 
and uh, and best way to collect waste. And uh, it was really a big effort by Mayor Tom Burnaby, his service director, John Hyman, and also city council, everybody working together in order to get this done. And also working with their waste collectors because they're the they're the people that are on the front lines collecting the waste and that is a tough tough job actually the fifth most dangerous job according to the u.s labor statistics in the united states and so they wanted to make it safer for their waste collectors so now they got the wheeled cart they'll pull it up to the back of the waste truck and they'll have a tipper on there which they will connect the the wheeled cart to the tipper and they'll pull the lever and it'll dump the trash right into the truck. So you don't have uh, nearly the amount of heavy lifting that they've had to do in the past. And uh, so of course that's going to reduce injuries and just make it a whole lot safer. So that's good news. We also see a lot of smoke that could be coming our way. It's not going to be nearly as bad as the smoke that is generated out there in California and Oregon due to all those unfortunate uh, fires that are just taking place out there. They have over 40,000 people that have had to evacuate uh, at this point, and they're looking at a much higher amount. And that's just due to the, the smoke that's being generated through the forest fires. And they're saying that they're actually, we're starting to see some of that particulate debris uh, in our air quality. And uh, we're certainly not going to see the amount that they have out west. But right now, our, according to Linda Markle, who works for the Canton City Health Department, and she works for the uh, Air Pollution Control Division, uh, she's saying that uh, we're seeing a number 68, uh, is, and that's, which is a moderate level. And, uh, and they're also seeing up in Cleveland, the um, meteorologist center up there in Cleveland, that they're uh, starting to detect some of the particulate debris in the air from the forest fires. City of Canton also was exercising the monitoring of their shot detection equipment. That was yesterday from 9 a.m. to noon. And if any of you were hearing gunshots yesterday from 9 a.m. to noon in the city of Canton, do not be alarmed because they were shooting blanks. The police department was shooting blanks. And this is uh, just to test the equipment. What they're doing is when uh, they have shots that are fired in a real-life circumstance, uh, whether it's in the middle of the night or during the day, they are able to go out there, uh, identify where specifically where the shots are fired, uh, and go out there and investigate and find out what the problem is. Uh, They have found across the country when they use these shot detection equipment systems that it significantly reduces the crime because the response time is increased dramatically. So that's great news out there in the city of Canton with with city council and mayor Tom Burnaby. They are on top of it. Uh, Also our police chief. That's great news. We're going to have a cleaner, safer city of Canton. And when you have clean, safe cities, that brings in jobs. And when you bring in jobs, that brings in financial security to our residents. You know, because I've found over the years that uh, really what all people want, they want safety and they want security. 
and the safety comes by having a good quality local police department that are well-trained and that are there and committed to serve the community. That's what we need more of. And then also, the security comes from having a good paying job. Having a job. You have a job and it reduces stress. So that brings us to what we are going to talk about next, which is ways to reduce reduce our stress levels. So this is according to psychology today. They say seven ways mentally strong people deal with stress. Now, when we talk about mentally strong people, I always encourage my children, my six kids. I'm like, life is tough. Life is tough. There's just no way that you can avoid the challenges that you're going to face in life. Because sometimes the stress from those challenges and those difficulties can seem overwhelming. But one thing we can do is we can get stronger. We can get mentally stronger. And this is what they found. The seven, the seven things that uh, people that cope with stress, what are those seven things that they do? Number one, they accept that stress is a part of life. While some people waste time and energy thinking things like, I shouldn't have to deal with this. Mentally strong people know that setbacks, problems, and hardships are inevitable. When stressful situations arise, they devote their efforts into doing what they can do to move forward. Even when they can't change the circumstances, they know they can always take steps to improve their lives. Number two, in order to deal with stress, people that have learned that are mentally strong, they keep problems in perspective. Rather than think that the flat tire has the power to ruin their whole day, mentally strong people keep inconveniences into proper perspective. You know, we're all tempted to catastrophize a minor event such as thinking one mistake could ruin their whole career. It's that dark thinking. You got to get rid of it. It's not helpful, but you want to know something? It's human nature. All of us are tempted to find the negative in life. It's just how we're wired. So we've got to combat that. And they say to respond by reframing the message your self-talk. What do you tell yourself? This is going to be a terrible day. This is going to be a bad day. Or you can say, you know what? This is okay. We're going to get through this. Your self-talk is so important. So keep your problems in perspective and have a positive self-talk. This is okay. We're going to get through this. Keep the negative dialogue, the dialogue with yourself out. Number three, they take care of their physical health. You know what was interesting about physical health? A few years ago, I started cutting my own grass, right, with, uh, with the push mower. And uh, I didn't have the propel, you know, the belt that was working on it. And I just uh, didn't get around to, well, I tried to fix it myself, but it was a little more complicated <laughs> 
than I thought it would be. And I just didn't get around to taking it up, uh, you know, to the uh, repair shop. So I just proceeded to push and, you know, it's amazing what a good workout it was. And then it wasn't until recently that I, I used, you know, a lot of people have those step counters with uh, those Fitbits. I don't have a Fitbit, okay, but I do have on my phone a step counter. So neighbor across the street, he was losing a lot of weight. I said, boy, you look fantastic. What are you doing? He goes, yeah, I'm counting my steps. So I thought, well, okay, I'll put it on my phone. And what I discovered after cutting my lawn, we have a pretty good-sized lawn. But I was walking while cutting grass, just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, 4.71 miles just by, you know, cutting the grass a little over an hour. And um, so then I was into it. Then I thought, geez, I'll go cut the neighbor's grass too, uh, which was another four miles. And so it's amazing what we can do when we put our minds to it. You know, physical health makes us feel so, so much better. So mentally strong people, they recognize the importance of keeping their bodies in smooth operating condition. They recognize they won't be able to combat stress if they are worn out and running on empty. So we got to take care of ourselves. It's reported some people take care of their pets better than they take care of themselves. So it's important to exercise, get plenty of sleep, and maintain a diet that keeps them healthy. We don't want to be eating all the junk food. I do that. Well, see, now if my wife was sitting here, she would be saying to me, who are you to tell people about eating junk food? (laughs) Because ice cream is my weakness. Ice cream is definitely my weakness. Number four, when we're looking at the seven ways that mentally strong people deal with stress, and you know, we say mentally strong, all of us can be strong and all of us can be weak. But what separates those from that are mentally stronger and those when we are mentally weak, it really is just the approach that we take. So number, number four is they choose healthy coping skills. While some people turn to alcohol, junk food, or other unhealthy vices to help them escape stress, mentally strong people with discomfort handle with discomfort in a productive manner. They allow themselves to feel uncomfortable emotions like anxiety, fear, sadness, and they take it head on. So it's our nature to seek ease, comfort, and pleasure. That's how we're wired. Would we rather stay in bed or get up? Would we rather eat the chocolate cake or go for a walk? Of course we'd rather eat the chocolate cake or the chocolate ice cream, or vanilla ice cream, whatever it is. Getting up and moving, not a good thing. But a good friend of mine who is 75 years old, he's in great shape, and he goes, you know, every day got to push myself to get up and moving. He goes, but once I get moving, he said, I feel kind of like the Tin Man. You know, it's just like, boy, it's tough getting this body rolling. 
you know, like he needs the, needs the oil can. But once he gets moving, he just feels good. And, and so I think it's important really for all of us. If you've got people that are in their 70s and 80s and 90s that are m- moving and working, uh, you know, we can do it too. So that was number four. They choose healthy coping schools. Number five, they balance social activity with solitude. So it's important to have time in solitude. Solitude. You know, um, a lot of people get energized in different ways. Um, I'm usually somebody that gets energized by being around people, but then I also need to have my time to myself, which usually cutting the grass is a good time. That's when I do my best thinking, cutting grass. It's like you get into the zone, right? And then number six, mentally strong people, how they handle stress. They acknowledge their choices. Stress can cause people to feel like the victims of bad circumstances. But if you're mentally strong, now these are techniques, okay? It's not like people are born mentally strong or people are born mentally weak. It's really the approach that they take. So when you're taking the right approach to handling stress, you're becoming a mentally stronger person. They acknowledge that everything they do from the time they wake up until the time they go to sleep is a choice, a choice. We've got decisions every day. We can choose to face our problems head on, or we can take the easy route of ease, comfort, and pleasure. And as I tell my kids, they're 25 down to 14. You know, what, what you find is that, um, you know, our default, we are wired to take the easier path, but it's really an act of the will that, that, that pushes us to overcome that. Number seven, I think this, this, is, this is one of my favorite here, is that people that are handling stress well, they look at the silver lining. Mentally strong people don't necessarily see the world through those rose-colored glasses. They have a realistic outlook, but they look for the silver lining in tough circumstances. And speaking of the silver lining, we're going to see some of the positive effects that our honor court, Judge Taryn Heath and her administrator, Lisa Williams, are going to be joining us On the line here today, we're going to be interviewing them because they've had great success over the past 10 years with the Honor Court, where they're taking uh, veterans that have served our country and have felonies due to mental health or drug-related incidents, and they're turning their lives around. So stay with us, and at 9.05, we're going to have Judge Taryn Heath and Lisa Williams. We're going to be talking about the success of the Honor Court that they've had over the past 10 years. This is David Held, and you're listening to News Talk 1480 WHBC. Good morning. It's nice and sunny out today, and... Even though we got a lot of challenges going on in the world, we have a lot of successes that are taking place right here in Stark County. And uh, when you look at the stress that people go through in life, 
particularly now with, uh, you know, you have the, the COVID going on and, and uh, children getting back to school. Well, they're seeing an increase in, uh, in drug use and also alcohol abuse. And uh, we're seeing that uh, also with our veterans. And one of the ways that this has been successfully dealt with over the past 10 years is with Judge Taryn Heath and the Honor Court here in Stark County. And so we have on the line with us Lisa Williams, who is the administrator of the program for Judge Taryn Heath. And I believe we also have Judge Taryn Heath on the line as well. Can you hear us, ladies? Yes, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Judge. How are you? Yes, uh, Judge, can you hear us? Yes. I can. Yeah, yes. How are you doing this morning? I'm well. How about yourself? I'm doing very well. How Thank about... you. Thank you for coming on the program. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for inviting us. We're anxious to share with all your listeners um, the stellar program that we have going on for uh, the veterans in Stark County uh, with you today. Well, thank you very much for being here. And we also have on the line Lisa Williams. And Lisa, you are the administrator for the program for Judge Taryn Heath, correct? Yes, I am the program director. Good morning. Thank you for having us on. Yes, thank you for coming. So tell us about the Honor Court. The Honor Court is, this is geared towards veterans that have had a felony conviction, and they come through your court and... and and what w- what is it that happens when you have a a person that has a felony and they come through your court as compared to somebody else that might come through? That's a great question. So um, the honor court is what we call a specialized treatment court, a specialized docket court that uh, is certified by the Ohio Supreme Court. Uh, that means that we employ best practices, that we have trained professionals, and that uh, we maintain statistical data um, on certain information um, for evaluation that demonstrates that the approach that we are taking um, is working. The premise of Honor Court which is what we call a veterans treatment court, is reclaiming the honor, dignity, and lives of veterans who have found themselves involved in our criminal justice system. And we do that by um, providing increased management over and above what our typical probationers receive. The way that we do that is through uh, individualized judicial oversight that requires regular court appearances uh, before a treatment team. And um, that is unlike a typical probationer who just reports to their probation officer and doesn't see a judge unless they happen to violate probation. Whereas Honor Court, um, I hold a docket uh, on the second and fourth Fridays of every single month, um, and the individuals who participate in Honor Court appear before me uh, regularly so that we can monitor um, their, their completion of the program requirements 
mm-hmm. and make sure that every step of the way, um, if they face certain challenges or needs, that we address those on an ongoing basis. So, no, um, no, no, Judge, I most of on, the... David, but if you have a question... I'll... No, no, this is great. I mean, you know what I was most impressed with? And uh, um, because I had a chance to talk with uh, Lisa Williams, and she is she's on the line also, and she's your administrator, right? So it's really very much a team approach that you have, and the and the recidivism rate is. I mean, you're having great success with this, right? I mean, how many people that go through the program actually, you know, um, stay clean and and uh, and do well, or how many how many actually go back? back into the system, go back into prison? So I can take that question, David. Um, 68% of our participants successfully complete this year-long intensive program. And we have, over the past nine years, successfully graduated 108 veterans. Of those graduates, only 5% have reoffended with a felony charge. And that is a really good reoffense rate because normally... 65% 65% of individuals that are on regular probation and not participating in a specialized docket typically reoffend. So we're doing really well as far as like the national averages and against other veterans treatment courts are typically between 5 and 10% reoffense rate, which is really low. Well, it's, 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 it's amazing. And, and what, what do you attribute that success to that, uh, that, you know, such a great success rate. What what is well, that attributed um, to? I, I will tell you this: that unlike other specialized dockets, um, we have a peer mentoring program um, that's designed to support and foster successful completion uh, of the program. And basically, what we have is volunteer veterans uh, from the community who are trained as mentors and provide mentor uh, support to our participants, uh, both at our docket court appearances and in between those court appearances to make sure that um, they're staying on track and they're receiving support every step of the way. So, so it's really uh, like so. So the volunteers. So you have a group of volunteers that that are available as as mentors and support people. So it's really like a, a, a almost like a twenty four hour service that that they're there as as individuals to support them if they're having a difficult time or they're having a uh, you know a stressful day. They're they're available to to provide that support, right? Absolutely. And typically, our participants have either uh, mental health or substance abuse issues uh, or both. So it's really important to have that mentor component. Because a lot of a lot of individuals that are being sent to, to prison, if they have a felony conviction, what what would you estimate is, uh, you know, the, the percentage of individuals that are tied to drugs or alcohol? just in general, that come through your court? Uh, oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, are you talking in general? Yeah, just in, uh, just in general. I mean, just, you know, as, a, as an observation, I mean, it seems like drugs or alcohol can usually oftentimes are, are one of the root problems 
that uh, that people seem to without have. a doubt. I I would I would estimate eighty to ninety percent of the cases that come before me involve in some way, shape, or form uh, drugs and alcohol. Wow. Yeah. And see, and and it's really so. It, it really comes down to a person's uh, ability to cope with stress, right? I mean, oftentimes they say that the, you know, the cause of the, the drug abuse or the addiction uh, is because they're, you know, it could be a mental health condition, which they're you know, not properly managing their medication or they don't have any medication that's available to them, right? Right. Um, you know, I oftentimes say, especially with individuals who have dual diagnoses, um, meaning both a mental health issue and a substance abuse issue, that only treating the substance abuse issue doesn't get to the core or the root of the problem, and they will likely um, relapse unless we treat that mental health issue concurrently with the substance abuse issue. Wow, that, see, that's so it's really a comprehensive program. When you have individuals that are struggling, uh, with with a mental health issue, they're struggling with a drug addiction or alcohol addiction, because I was you know seeing that uh, people that come through the program, I mean they're saying it's changed their life. I mean you had one gentleman that uh, I saw in the article it's uh, not too long ago where he was you know continuously in for DUIs, right and and then you got him into the program and how long does the program typically take? Is it uh, 15 months or, or, uh... um, it's typically a 12 to 18 month program, but it could be up to a maximum of 24 months. And I do believe that it is transformational. Um, what I stress with our participants is we're not just trying to get them through probation. We're trying to give them a new foundation for the rest of their lives. And and we do that. Okay, it looks like we had judge, uh, we may have lost the judge, but we'll get her back on the line. And so what we're talking about is the honor court that they have in Stark County. And uh, the honor court has been a really, really successful program where they're taking individuals that have a mental health or uh, drug problem, and when they come through, uh, the court system and Judge Taryn Heath's court system, they're coming through because they have a felony conviction. And uh, and usually the root of their problem is drugs or alcohol. And uh, what the honor court does is they find mentors that are available, volunteer mentors uh, for individuals that have served our country and are struggling with drug or alcohol and they put him into a program that is uh, anywhere from 12 to 18 months. It's uh, providing them with the services that they need, with the drug rehabilitation, with the mentoring, with the uh, uh, support. And they've had an incredible, incredible success rate over the past 10 years. And uh, we had Lisa Williams on the line and Judge Taryn Heath. Uh, and they're 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 operating this program, and they said that they had only five percent, only five percent that um, that have went back and uh, went back to prison. And so uh, they're doing a great great job. And what we want to do, so I, w- I would like for you to st- uh, stick around because we're going to get we're going to try to get on the line 
one of the participants who who actually turned his life around and uh and now he's 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 running the program for the volunteer mentors so we're going to see how people are turning their lives around and making things better uh and then uh, making it better for other people so we're going to take a break and stick around come back and we'll uh listen to steve wrangle who is one of those success stories you're listening to news talk 1480 whpc Good morning. This is David Heldon. You're listening to the Saturday morning program, News Talk 1480 WHBC. And we have Judge Taryn Heath and Lisa Williams. Lisa Williams is the administrator for Judge Taryn Heath's court, and they have the Honor Court. The Honor Court has seen great, great success when they're taking convicted felons that uh, were also uh, retired veterans, and uh, they've either had a drug or uh, drug alcohol problem or a mental health condition. And uh, when they're coming through the court, instead of sending them to prison, Judge Taryn Heath started a program to provide them with rehabilitation and support services. And uh, Judge, you're seeing great, great success from the program. Uh, yes, we are. We're uh, really proud of the work that. Uh, we've accomplished uh, with our veterans. Uh, They are uh, supported through the Honor Court program uh, by our treatment team and our mentor program. And basically given um, the opportunity for a new, healthy, and productive lifestyle. Now, when you have, you you know, uh, someone that comes through through your court, What's the, what's the attitude of, uh, do you have different attitudes or are all of them embracing this program and saying, thank you, I want to get into it? Or do you have some that, you know, maybe they're resistant and they're not real excited about it in the beginning? Ms. Oh, we definitely have those that have what I like to describe as a chip on their shoulder. Uh, when they first enter the program, they don't want to be there um, because to To be honest with you, going through honor court is more difficult than regular probation. It's a lot of work, um, and a lot is expected of our participants. And until they embrace the program and realize that the team and the mentors are there for them, as opposed to being viewed as the court, the police, the establishment, um, which is who they're used to uh, going against until they realize that we're all there actually to help them uh, as opposed to, you know, catch them, convict them, punish them. Um, It it takes some time to gain their trust and their buy-in to the program. But those that do are the ones that benefit the most and have the most transformational experience through the program. So you get the opportunity then to really see how these individuals will come into your courtroom with a felony conviction. And after a program that's 12 to 18 months, you actually see them. They become a transformed person. Their their lives are just completely different by the end of the program. 
And and without it, it's got to be satisfying. Oh, without a doubt, this is one of the best parts of my job as a common pleas judge. Um, I get to see the progress, the um, the healing of lives of people who now have a sense of self-worth and self-love that they didn't have when they came to us. And it is by far one of the most rewarding aspects of my job. Now you've had, uh, so one of your success stories is Steve Rangel, right? <laughs> yeah, Steven. Steven Rangel. And so did he... Did he start out coming through your program, or how did uh, Stephen get get involved in, in in your program? Well, actually, Stephen and I go back a ways. Um, I actually sent him to prison a couple of times before oh. he came to our program. Oh, you did. Now, now you sent him yeah. to prison, obviously, because he had a felony conviction and he had some problems with drugs, alcohol, and and some other issues, right? And so yes. you sent him to prison, and then and and obviously that you know that that wasn't working out so well for him. So then he he went through the the honor court program. Yes, correct. And and so it it really turned his life around. You know, uh, we're going to see. I think we can get Stephen on the line if you would like. Uh, if you would like, uh, I think it would be nice to get Stephen on the line. Stephen, are you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Stephen, are you on the line? Yes, I am. All right. So we have Stephen Rangel. And Stephen, uh, you first met Judge Taryn Heath when you were in a bit of a problem, and uh, she sent you to prison. Is that right? That's correct. And uh, and we have Judge Taryn Heath on the line now. And, uh, and so now your relationship is a lot different with her. Tell us what happened. Tell um, us, tell us well, what changed I, it. Judge Heath actually sent me to prison um, on multiple occasions. <laughs> and... Uh, I literally, I, I couldn't get things right. Um, I would come out of uh, prison, and I didn't have any really good uh, resources to go to, so I would uh, head back into the streets, uh, which was pretty much comfortable for me, and I just really couldn't get anything right. There wasn't, a, I didn't have any resources available, and I, obvi- and I wasn't taking care of the limited resources that were uh, available to me at the time. So was it really, um, uh, so so you just found yourself repeating the same, you know, just going back to the same habits that were just getting you into trouble, right? And That's correct. And what what was that, you know, was there a series of defining periods or was there one defining moment that that kind of just turned, turned your life around? Um, I was, uh, the last time that I was sent to prison, um, when I was released on judicial release, I was released into the Stark County Veterans Honor Court. And um, I'll be honest with you, at the time when I was released into that, I was pretty angry because I just wanted to go home. Um, but once I was released into that program, um, I realized something real quick once I was released into that program. Um, those people were there to help me. Um, they were there from the beginning with their arms wide open. And I got to see um, the judge and court officials in a different light than I had ever seen them before. So you were looking at the, at the judge and her staff as, uh, you know, they, they were like the enforcement end. And they, in, in, in the beginning, you, you looked at them as a source of problems for you. And, and now you're looking at them as a source of strength and support. And, 
And how long did, what was it like going through the program? What, what, so you were kind of going into it against your will, would you say, or were you, were you uh, open to it? Yeah, I would have to say that I definitely went into this against my will. Um, and then once I started into the program, I started noticing something that this was a whole lot different than anything that I had ever been involved with before. And so really, what kind of support services, like what, why was this program different? Um, first and foremost, um, we were greeted in the, in the courtroom and thanked for our service, which is something that had never happened to me in any court program that I had ever been into before. Um, secondly, um, I was given a mentor to mentor me through the program. And, um, this guy was, he was a real friendly guy and he came up and introduced himself. And, you know, of course I didn't trust anybody at the time. And, but, you know, everybody just seemed really happy. And, um, I, I saw, uh, judge Heath in it and, you know, she just looked entirely different up there on the bench. Uh, the first time that I walked into the courtroom. Of Honor Court. <laughs> so she looked, uh, she looked a little bit nicer, right? I mean, cause you, you perceived her as, as, uh, a force that was, uh, creating problems for you, right? Most definitely prior to entering honor court. Um, she was definitely not one of my favorite people. <laughs> my and judge what what do you think about that i mean you it, it's got to be amazing to see somebody like steven coming in and and not looking at you in a very positive light and now and now you and him are friends you and he are friends oh my god yes steven um you know he he graduated our program he's one of our um best mentors and he's actually um now holds like a position of leadership with our mentor program. He's our outreach coordinator, and he and I have a great relationship. Um, and um, it it it's wonderful. I mean, Stephen is a friend. He's a go-to person during honor court proceedings um, as an example of. Someone who, you know, obviously uh, had struggled with uh, maintaining a, a legal lifestyle and um, has turned his life entirely around um, to the extent he's repaired relationships with his family. Um, so it's, has, it's really, uh, it's so really, Stephen, it, Stephen, it's you're just like a different person with a different life now through this. Um, today when I wake up, um, and I look in the mirror, I don't see the same guy that I used to see seven years ago. Wow. And now, now you are taking that through the program, Judge Taryn Heath's program, uh, the honor court and the mentors that you've had in the program, they've turned your life around. And now what are you doing? What are you doing? You're, you're, you're a part of the program now to help others. Yes, uh, I, I had to wait a year um, out of the program, and then I came back and trained and became a mentor in this program. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a program that I, I have to be honest with you. It's life-changing. It's been life-changing for me. It gave me everything that I needed to have after the program uh, by becoming a mentor. It has actually shaped me into somebody that I have never been. Today, I'm a friend. I'm a husband. I'm a father. 
I'm a grandpa, and I am a mentor. And, you know, those things like that, to be honest with you, prior to entering and uh, completing this program, those are nothing that was ever possible for me. Now, now, Judge, when you have somebody that comes through the program and you have someone like Stephen who was resistant to the program, was resistant to you, and now he's turned his life around through this program and now he's helping others, does it make, does it make a big difference when you can you know, take that individual, the new person coming in who's resistant, has a chip on their shoulder, and you, and you pass them on to, uh, we got a little feedback there, um, okay, if you pass them, if anyone has a radio on that uh, 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 that's on the line, we'll just turn the radio down. But um, So what's it like to be able to turn that new uh, honor court participant over to Stephen? Does... Um, I have complete trust in Stephen that he will help that individual navigate our program and that Stephen, he is one of our best mentors. Uh, he just is phenomenal. And um, that is so incredibly gratifying to know that he came from um, a low point in his life to a place of honor and dignity and self-worth and that he is paying it forward to his fellow veterans um we're, we're just incredibly proud of Stephen, and we're we're actually very thankful that he is part of our program because he is a living breathing example to our other participants of what you can accomplish uh, through embracing the Honor Court program. So on the line with us, we have Judge Taryn Heath, and she started the Honor Court program here. Uh, it was about 10 years ago. And then uh, she's taking veterans that have had a, a felony conviction uh, due to a drug problem or a combination of drug and alcohol uh, and mental health uh, challenges and uh, sending them through this program. And one of the participants, who's also on the line here with us, is uh, Stephen Rangel. And Stephen came through the program and did not like Judge Taryn Heath very much at all and was resistant towards the program and uh, was forced into the program. And now that you went through it, it's changed your life, Stephen. And now you are the Honor Court Coordinator that is coordinating mentors for others. And what would you say to any individuals that are veterans out there that might be listening and, uh, and they're struggling with drug and alcohol problems? What would you say to them, Stephen? Stephen's still on the line here with us. Can you hear us, uh, Stephen? Okay, and Judge. Yes, I can hear you. Yes, you I can, can hear you. Sorry, okay. I, I was out there for a minute. What I was saying is seek help, seek help fast, and we're here. They're here. And you can, and if they're feeling hopeless, like there is no hope for me. You know, my, my life is too messed up, right? What would you say about that? What would you say to them? It's never too late. No one ever thought that I would be in the position where I'm at today, including myself. Uh, it's never too late. It's you're never, you're never, you're not unique. You can get help. 
You can do this. You can change your life. And how important were the mentors, the mentors that are the volunteers? You got how many mentors do you have available that are working with individuals right now? We have, uh, I think, uh, 15 active mentors, maybe even more than that. But we typically have for every participant, we have two mentors assigned to each participant. And the mentors are the most important part of this program. Um, they work hand in hand daily with their mentee. Um, and we only meet every other week in the court system. Well, so you meet every other week. So judge you, how oftentimes do you hold the, uh, the honor court and how does, how does that process work? So if somebody comes in, they come into your uh, courtroom and you see that they're a veteran and they would be a candidate for the program. Uh, give us a quick walkthrough as to, as to what that would look like uh, for, for that individual. Yeah, well, each participant is referred by their sentencing judge to the Honor Court program, and then they um, uh, are required to do a variety of things. Um, they have to have a mental health assessment, a substance abuse assessment, and we don't use what we call a cookie-cutter approach. We develop individualized treatment plans for each participant, and then they're required to appear uh, before me uh, twice a month initially. Um, right now we're doing that all via Zoom uh, due to COVID, um, but um, typically um, they would come to the courtroom. And while we're doing the team staffing, there is a mentoring session going on in the courtroom. And then um, when I take the bench for the regular docket, uh, each of them appears before me and um, we, we, with new participants, I conduct an individual orientation uh, with them. Um, and then each court session, um, we discuss uh, their, uh, how they are accomplishing their program requirements, how they are complying with their treatment program, and um, we give them support and encouragement. We make sure any challenges or needs that they have like just a simple example somebody's brakes go out on their vehicle and they don't have the financial resources to get their car fixed to get to work or to get to their um aa meetings or anything uh, we find the resources through we have a variety of people that help us we'll get those brakes fixed and then wow. get them it's the kind of things we have a we have a what I call our little commissary. We have a food pantry right off the courtroom. So if somebody doesn't have food in their cupboard or groceries, they go away with a couple bags of groceries. We had a have a clothes and shoes closet right off the courtroom. Um, some of our people don't even have those things, and we don't want them worrying about their basic needs we want them to focus on themselves and what they need to do so each session they meet with their mentors then um, we meet and the treatment team is there while they appear before me so if somebody has a civil legal need I can do a warm handoff to our community legal aid representative if someone um, so whatever is, so whatever is whatever challenge or problem you have you can direct them to getting the services and the support that they need which which keeps that's that's really one of the strengths of the program right 
Absolutely. Now, now, Judge, we're going to, uh, th- this has really been incredible. I mean, to have you, uh, Judge Taryn Heath, and also Stephen Rangel, who started out in your courtroom, and he did not like you very much, and he had uh, a lot of problems, and he had a felony conviction, and you sent him to prison, and now here he is working in your honor court, and he's helping to transform the lives of other people. We're going to uh, we're going to close out this segment, but before we go, Judge, I would ask for for you to just uh, you know what, what do you what would you have to say to Stephen with with all the success that he has, and then Stephen, I would also like you to respond to Judge uh, before we close this out here, Judge. Well, this 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 could be a little bit emotional here because um, I I consider Stephen a friend, a personal friend, and. Uh, one of the most uh, valuable um, people to our program uh, for his mentorship, for his example of success. And um, I I always tell my participants that um, it comes from a place of caring and love, and I care and love Stephen just like every other participant, but um, now – as a member of our, our team, uh, he is part of our Honor Court family and our Honor Court team, and just so incredibly uh, um, thankful that we have Stephen with us. And Stephen, what would, what would you like to say to, to uh, Judge Taryn Heath? I want to thank Judge Heath for giving me my life back. Um, without, without the Honor Court program, Without the continued support of what I've uh, of what I've received from this program, I have my life today. Our moniker is that we say that we are regaining honor, dignity, and lives. And I'll tell you what, the honor court has given me that. I have that today. And I want to close on one thing: on October the 16th of this year, I will celebrate seven years home from prison. And I'll tell you what, that is a blessing. That is so nice. What it's it's just so great to have, you know, all of you on the program, Judge Taryn Heath, Stephen Rangel, who's been an example of success in, in the program, the honor court program, turned his life around after a felony conviction, did not like Judge Taryn Heath, and now the two of them are best of friends. And we also want to thank uh, Lisa Williams for helping to coordinate this uh, interview here today, and she's the administrator in your court. Uh, we'd like to thank all of you that are participating in the program. And, Judge, keep up the good work because you're changing lives. You're truly making a difference. And we thank well, you thank for having you. on the program. Thank you for having us, and thank you for sharing. Um, I would just mention, David, if I can, if anybody's interested in becoming a mentor, if there's any veteran out there listening, we're always looking for great mentors um, and, uh, you know, they can contact uh, us at the court. Um, Is there a number, a number they can call? Do we have a number they sure. can call, Judge Turn? Yes. yes. Our, our mentor coordinator is George Wassity, 330-571-8326. Once again, 330-571-8326. All right. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you both for being on the program and also to Lisa Williams. And we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we are going to have Secretary of State Frank LaRose on, and we'll be talking about uh, voter registration. 
Good morning. This is David Held, and you are listening to News Talk 1480 WHBC. And now we are going to be talking about what is on the minds of a lot of people and uh, will will be on the minds of a lot of people, which is uh, voting. We've got a big decision to make. And on the line with us, we have Secretary of State Frank LaRose. Frank, thank you for joining us this morning. Hey, good morning. Glad to join you. All right. And so uh, you're up there trying to keep everything in line as far as uh, collecting votes, distributing ballots. You know, this this I think it was this past week um, we received. Let me see. There was four envelopes that came to our house, four pieces of mail that had uh, Secretary of Frank LaRose right on there. I opened it up and I got my ballot and uh, it was actually not my ballot. It was my uh, application to register to to have a ballot right and so so did all of those did did every registered voter every registered voter get get one of those uh applications all 7.8 million of them 7.8 million registered voters in the state of ohio received that and yes you're right it's not a ballot it's a ballot application in ohio it's a two-step process if you want to vote from home and we we recommend it it's a convenient way to make your voice heard uh, first, you have to apply for the ballot. Then the Board of Elections will send it to you. And then you have to send it back to the Board of Elections. And so what we're trying to do is put one of these applications, along with the self-addressed envelope, in the hand of every Ohio voter so that they can quite simply fill out just a few fields on that page, sign it, put uh, the date on there, and, and, of course, your date of birth, where that goes, and then send it in. And what will happen then is your county Board of Elections will send you and the ballot uh, on uh, on and about October 6th. They're going to start sending those out. So you can expect it in early October. And then we want you to return that as quickly as you can, too. Here's the good news, David. Good news, David. Over a million Ohioans have already requested their absentee ballot. That by far eclipses anything we've ever seen in the past. And that's great news. It's helping us flatten the curve in a different way by helping these boards of elections get ahead of the process. If everybody turned in their absentee ballot request form at the last minute, it would swamp our boards of elections. You guys have a really good one there in Stark County and the surrounding counties. Uh, but, uh, you know, if they get all those applications all at once, it would be a problem for them. So it's good that people are getting those in right now. Now, uh, now uh, uh, Frank, when you normally, like every election, the, the ballots don't get sent out every election. Is that correct? The, the ballot applications. Is this something that just happens a certain during certain elections? Or, um... So Ohio has the tradition over the last eight years of doing it every time there is an even-numbered general election. So let me explain that. Uh, every time there's a presidential election or every time there's a gubernatorial election. So when there's a governor's race going on or when there's a presidential race going on, the Secretary of, State office, Secretary of State's office has traditionally sent those forms out. Of course, absentee voting is available to all Ohioans in every election, including in the primaries, in those local elections, even special elections. No-fault absentee voting, which simply means everybody that wants to can vote from the comfort of home. That's always available. But the reason this office, including you know what my predecessor did and what we're doing now, sends these applications out during elections like these is quite simple. Uh, we don't want to see lines on election day. We know that these are the elections that tend to drive high turnouts. We we want to see that. We think that we could actually set a record for voter participation this year, and that would be a great thing. But if everybody just shows up and votes in person, there would be lines and crowding, and particularly in the midst of a pandemic, that's obviously not safe. 
And so we want to encourage as many Ohioans as can to vote absentee or to vote early. If you like that in-person experience, if you personally want to stick the ballot into the scanner and, 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 and hear it go through there and get your I voted sticker, you can do that, too, by voting early at your Board of Elections. Over 200 hours of early voting are available in Ohio, and that starts October 6th as well. With evening and weekend hours, there's really no good reason to do it. Of course, if you wait all the way until Election Day, then we'll have the polls open from 6.30 a.m. till 7.30 p.m. as well. So really, three good choices. Just pick which one works best for you. Absentee voting for four weeks, early voting for four weeks, or Election Day voting. And make your voice heard. That's all. So as you're making, so we have uh, on the line with us Secretary of State Frank LaRose. And uh, Frank LaRose is uh, trying to make uh, voting as accessible as possible. And I know one of the... uh, uh, one of the items that you had proposed is to have a postage paid return for the application. Is that correct, or is this something that, that you were that you were proposing? How is that coming that's along? Something I've been, that's something I've been pushing for. Many states do that, and again, this is not a, a red thing or a blue thing or a Republican thing or a Democratic thing. A lot of states, uh, a lot of very diverse states, including very Republican states and very Democratic states, provide a postage paid return envelope. It's not beneficial to one party or the other. It's just smart elections administration. It's really what it's meant to do is to make it convenient for voters so that they don't leave that ballot sitting on their kitchen table. We want it back as soon as we can, especially with mail moving slow right now. And, you know, it's not something to, to lose sleep about, but the mail is moving a few days slower than we're accustomed to. And so we want every voter to make their vote, make their vote sign the identification envelope, and mail that ballot back right away. And that's why I've been asking the state legislature to provide me that authority. I need their permission in order to provide those postage-paid envelopes. And I've been asking since April. It's unfortunate they haven't given me that permission yet. And uh, I'm going to keep pushing for it because there's one last opportunity, and it comes up on Monday. And actually, uh, Scott Oschlager, one of your local uh, representatives there, a good friend of mine and a conscientious, very hardworking legislature, legislator, he's going to be one of the votes on that. And so I'm hoping that, uh, that Scott supports our proposal uh, because, again, what it does is it just makes it easier for voters and easier for boards of elections to get those ballots in sooner so that we can get them counted on Election Day right at 730. So the, the, that vote is going to be taking place. So right now, all of the uh, you sent out to to all 7 million-plus voters in Ohio, you've sent out an application so that they can receive an absentee ballot. But if they mail that application in, they have to put their own postage on. But on Monday, you're going to uh, look for support to uh, get that postage paid for. But you have to, you've got to get that approved. And is that through the controlling board or the, the state legislator, or how does that work? It's through the state controlling board, which is a body of the state legislature that ex- that approves large expenditures by executive offices like mine. So I'm not asking the state for that money. I've been able to find that money in my own budget, and uh, we're, we're, we'd like to pay for it right out of the Ohio Secretary of State's budget. I just need their permission to spend my office's budget to provide Ohioans with the convenience of, uh, uh, of a postage-paid return envelope so that they can send that absentee ballot back really as soon as they get it. And really, the other thing, you've heard people talk about adding more... Now, no, well, uh, now, now, Secretary, I'm sorry, if you yeah. get that approved then, so, uh, you know, how, how would you go about implementing that? Would you send out another uh, application, or um, or how would you go about implementing that? Well, remember, David, the, the absentee ballots don't start going out until October 6th. 
So the boards of elections are not allowed to start sending out absentee ballots under law until October 6th. And so it would be a tight turnaround, but the boards of elections would then be able to produce those, you know, get the postage from us, put them on the envelopes. And so when they start sending out the actual ballots on October 6th, they would have a postage paid return envelope with them. Okay, so need to send out another round of applications. The applications are good. And if Ohioans have submitted an application, they'll get a ballot right about October 6th or 7th, depending on their board of elections. We just want to make sure that when they do get those ballots, it comes with a postage paid envelope. That's what we're fighting to get on uh, Monday, September 14th. And that'll be a decision made by the controlling board. Okay, I see. I see. Now it's really to get the postage paid for for the ballots. So right now, all 7 million plus uh, voters in Ohio, if you're a registered voter, you did get a ballot from Secretary of State Frank LaRose, uh, or you got you got an application for a ballot, you fill that out, you mail it in, and then you're hoping on Monday that you can get approval from the Legislative Controlling Board in order to get postage paid uh, for the return of the ballot once the, once the uh, residents uh, submit that request. Now, That's yeah, it, exactly. Yeah, and by the way, folks may see more of those applications, but they won't be coming from, from me. Campaigns and candidates and political parties have a tendency to send those out. That's perfectly legal. We ask them to use the official form that we provide from our website. But, uh, you know, you may see other applications for an absentee ballot come in from your local political party or from your favorite candidate or from the candidate you don't like. I see. Way. So, so you're going to have a lot, lot of, ba- lot of ballots are going to be, uh, ballot applications are going to be sent out by not only your right. office but other but other. Um, and uh, you only need to send in one. And, David, here's the other great thing. You send in one and you're good to go, but you can check and make sure that it's been received by going to voteohio.gov. That's the official Ohio Secretary of State website where you can track your ballot and your ballot application, just like you track a package. And so you can be confident that it was received and you can know when it's going to be on the way to you. And then once you mail your ballot back, you can make sure that the board has received it. So really, there's no good reason not to do this. And by the way, if you if you lost the application that we sent you, or if your spouse threw it away or the dog ate it, don't worry. You can go print your own at voteohio.gov or even make your own with just a simple piece of notebook paper where we give you instructions about how to just uh, make your own form. All those instructions are at voteohio.gov, and they're super simple. Now, now, Frank, also, it appears that uh, you've got a challenge, a court challenge, where um, you have uh, a challenge that uh, some people think that they should be able to take their ballots, right, once they fill them out and send them in via fax or, or electronically via email. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, so this is a foolish idea in a number of ways. First of all, I have long been a supporter. Five years ago, I proposed that we create a true, secure online application process, which would have ID requirements where you'd have to use your state ID or driver's license to validate that you are who you say you are, and with, of course, the right cybersecurity protocols built into it to protect it. That's such a system we could stand up. It would take us a couple months to do it. I would love to do that. Of course, that requires the authority of the state legislature to give me permission to do that. This is not what has been proposed. And in a what I think is a politically motivated lawsuit, unfortunately, the Ohio Democratic Party sued me and said that we should be able to accept uh, by email or by fax an application for an absentee ballot. Obviously, we train our boards of elections not to open attachments from an unknown source 
because that's the quickest way that a hacker can deliver a virus into your system. In fact, the Department of Homeland Security warned just yesterday that elections administrators need to be on high alert for suspicious emails. And so for a judge in Franklin County to tell boards of elections to ignore their cybersecurity training and start opening a bunch of attachments is just a foolish idea, especially with, you know, just about 20 days to go until early voting begins. And so obviously we're fighting that. Can't really get too much more into the details because it is pending litigation, but uh, it's a bad idea in a number of ways. We'd love to have a true online system, uh, but that's not what's been proposed here. And so obviously we have to fight this because really what it does is it blows a hole in the state-of-the-art cybersecurity protocols that we've put in place, and that's not something we can risk here in Ohio. Yeah, because in a very short period of time, you would be forced then to uh, to, to start opening up emails from, from, you know, God knows where it could be coming from, and, you know, that really could contaminate the system. Yeah, and by the way, it would also so chaos. Listen, you don't uh, rebuild an aircraft in flight, and you don't change the rules of an election uh, just weeks before early voting begins. And so, obviously, we're going to fight this. I'm all for modernization. Again, I've been proposing for five years that we create a secure online application process. Uh, we'd love to have that. I'm lobbying hard. In fact, there's a bipartisan bill called Senate Bill 191 that would do that, and I'm a major proponent of that bill. Uh, but this judge's order is um, dangerous, and we're going to fight it. Now, what? how many people do you expect to vote in this upcoming election for this presidential election in November? You know, my answer to that is always I'd love to see a 100% voter turnout. That's what all elections officials want. We believe in this process. We believe that our democracy thrives when every voice is heard. Uh, but obviously that's, that's usually not realistic. I think that in this election we could see the highest turnout we've ever seen. Uh, I don't want to predict a, a specific number, but I think we could see the highest turnout we've ever seen. And by the way, I also think that we will see the highest participation rates we've ever seen for online or for uh, absentee ballots and, uh, and for uh, early voting. Absentee and early voting could be the highest we've ever seen in our state's history as well. And that's good news. And by the way, I've got a little wager with the Michigan Secretary of State, and it's not about what happens on the football field. That's gotten pretty predictable. It's about what happens uh, on Election Day, and it's about which state has the highest voter turnout. And when they do, when Ohioans outpace Michigan, which I'm sure they will, the Michigan Secretary of State is going to show up to the big game once we finally have the chance to play the big game. And uh, she'll be wearing scarlet and gray and singing the Buckeyes play. Yeah, I think that's a good, I think that's a good wager, Frank. That's a good one. Hey, how about the, uh, so typically in a presidential election, you'll probably see about 85% of the registered voters participating. Is that, is that what you'd expect in that range uh, historically? Really? Yeah, normally it's, it's more like 75 uh, statewide and actually below that. And so, uh, again, I, I want to see a record turnout. And by the way, this would continue on the trends that we've seen for the last few years because 2016 was one of the highest turnouts we've ever seen in Ohio's history, and 2018 was the highest turnout governor's election we've ever seen in Ohio history and so it would be a good thing for that to continue. And then uh, and one last question, how about as far as um you know uh managing uh you know the polls, okay? So, you know, one of the thoughts that I always had when I was in public service is that, you know, as you're trying to get um you know people to work the polls and then of course I'm sure it's going to be even more of a challenge with uh, a lot of them are seniors and they may be, may be reluctant due to the, uh, the the COVID not to work the polls or maybe not be in a position to. Um, have you ever thought about, like, you know, utilizing government workers 
you know, having local government employees, or is that is that too restrictive? Yeah. No, we're, we're we're actually that's one of the many things that we're doing. We need Ohioans to volunteer for this opportunity. We need Ohioans to step up. It takes thirty five thousand Ohioans at a minimum just to open the polls on election day. We're trying to recruit fifty five thousand so that we're ready with that backup force, and that includes. Many counties are giving their employees a paid day off if they want to sign up to be a poll worker. Many private sector companies are given what we call a day for democracy where they can sign up to be poll workers. Ohio State University just announced that any Ohio State employee that wants to be a poll worker can get an uncharged day off to do that. And 17-year-olds can be poll workers. And so we're trying to encourage high school seniors to sign up for this as well because when you're one of those youth at the booth volunteers, not only is it a great education for you, Uh, You get paid for it, but also it's a great thing to have on your college application because a lot of schools aren't looking at ACT and SAT scores this year because of the pandemic. And so having worked as an elections official in your hometown in a presidential election is a pretty cool thing to have on a college Oh, that's a very good idea. I like that. So you can. uh, how old do you have to be then to work if you're a high school senior to work the polls? Any 17-year-old high school senior in Ohio can sign up. Even before you're eligible to vote, you can be a poll worker. And, again, it's a great experience, great education. We're looking for social studies teachers, by the way, and school uh, and other school officials to help us encourage students to do this. One way to do that is obviously to offer course credit for it or, or what have you. It's a great opportunity. And we're seeing a lot of Ohioans step up to the plate. Right there in Stark County, your Board of Elections is doing an excellent job with poll worker recruitment, but we've got to keep pushing for the next few weeks. And, by the way, the place to sign up, is voteohio.gov slash defend democracy, voteohio.gov slash defend democracy. You'll get a call from your board of elections. They'll schedule you for training and assign you to a polling location pretty close to home. It'll be a good experience. And by the way, my fellow veterans, I'm putting the call out to them as well. All of us that raised our right hand and took that oath of enlistment, we promised we'd protect this country. And that wasn't a uh, it didn't have an expiration date on it. That's a lifelong commitment. And this is a way to continue keeping your oath. Well, Frank, Senator Frank, Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, on the line here. We appreciate you coming on the line and uh, and interview, being interviewed today here, Frank. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask my daughter, Heidi. I'm going to have her sign up. She's 17. She's a senior at Hoover High School and have her work the polls because I think it really is a great way uh, you know, for something to put something positive to put on her application when she goes to college next year. So great suggestion. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time to explain all these uh, multiple factors that uh, that go into an election. And uh, you're, you're the head man and you're doing a great job. Well, and tell her to recruit a couple of friends, too. And you know what? It's a it's a significant year in that we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. And so think about this 100 years ago. Uh, you know, women weren't even eligible to be voters. Thank God we corrected that, and now we're starting the second century of women's suffrage. And what a great way to celebrate that for your daughter to sign up to be a poll worker. Thank you. So we need strong women, and we need strong women who are voting. And you can Amen. do that in this upcoming election. Well, Frank, thank you very much for coming on the program. And uh, so we're going to take a break, and uh, and we'll be talking about uh, giving you an update of some of the local issues that are taking place. This is David Held, and it's the Saturday morning program. You're listening to News Talk 1480 WHBC.
All right, we're coming up close to 11 o'clock here. We're going to be uh, finishing up our program today, and we've covered a number of different items. We had Senator Frank LaRose that was on there talking about uh, the applications that he sent out for absentee ballots, and they expect a high volume in this upcoming election. And uh, between President Donald Trump and uh, Vice President Biden, they got a big election coming up, so they're getting the absentee ballot applications out, and he's going to be seeking, uh, Secretary of State Frank LaRose is going to be seeking permission from the State Legislative Controlling Board, uh, a request to make those ballots that are sent out, uh, absentee ballots upon request, uh, that they be given a postage paid envelope. He doesn't uh, he, he thinks that that would be a great idea. And at the same time, he's facing the challenge because uh, he had the Democratic Party had sued uh, the Secretary of State because they would like for those uh, residents that get a ballot that they are able to fax or email the ballot into uh, the Board of Elections, which is posing a problem uh, at this time because they're saying that uh, the system is not set up in order to electronically receive through their cyber security system. So if somebody mails in a ballot, an email that they're, they're not permitted to open up those emails because it could contain a virus. So there's going to be a lot of, a uh, lot of uh, potential uh, changes that could be taking place in this upcoming election. And then we also had judge Taryn Heath. Uh, what a, what a really great program that she has out there and she has her administrator lisa williams uh and she's got you know one of her uh greatest program coordinators uh really was somebody that was in her courtroom steve wrangle about seven years ago he came through the program he was a convicted felon he had a, a drug problem had some other issues and he said he did not want to go through the honor court program but he said that uh once he got involved with it and he saw that the the judge taron heath was there to support him and help him it totally changed his life it transformed his life and now he's coordinating mentors in that program and he's encouraging others to uh to turn their life around and they only have uh you know the recidivism rate is like five percent which is really amazing and so as so a lot of us are dealing with stress, you know, stress is something is, that's going to happen to us. And sometimes we look at like life is just, just terrible. It's just overwhelming. What's interesting about this is when you look at uh, crime, we just see a lot of negative uh, news stories that are on TV. And, you know, you wonder, is crime going up or is crime going down? And when you look at it over the past, well, since 1990, okay, and 1991. In 1991, there was 1.9 million violent crimes that were reported. 1.9 million violent crimes that were reported in the United States. Now, did that number go up or go down? A lot of people think that crime is going up, but actually the crime has went down from 1.9 million in 1991, and now it's down to 1.2 million in 2018. So a lot of that has to do with, uh, you know, what we see on the media that just, you know, it plays over and over and over. 
and you see the you know the concerns about the COVID pandemic. You see the uh, the the crimes and shootings, and but really the crime is going down. And but one of the other things that we're seeing that's going up is actually the drug use and alcohol use, uh, particularly during this period of time when uh, we've had this you know the, the whole COVID issue. And so they're seeing like a 25% increase in, uh, in reported drug use and, uh, and overdoses, which is a real challenge. So, you know, one of the things we've got to keep in mind is how to handle stress. We've got to, you know, really it's, it's learning to, uh, become stronger. And, uh, they had seven tips from psychology today, the seven the seven characteristics that that people that are mentally strong now we're all mentally strong and we're all mentally weak it's just what part of the brain are we going to start feeding and they said uh, number one when you look at the seven tips for handling stress they accept that stress is a part of life so it's just accepting the fact that we've got stress while some people waste time and energy thinking things like, I shouldn't have to deal with this, people that are stronger mentally, it's an approach that you take, uh, know that they're going to have setbacks, problems, hardships, and that all those things are inevitable. When stressful situations arise, they devote their efforts into doing what they can do to move forward, even when they can't change the circumstances. They know they can always take steps to improve their lives. Number two they keep problems in perspective rather than think that hey, a flat tire is going to ruin the whole day. Mentally strong people, mentally strong people really keep inconveniences in the proper perspective. What do you, what do you think about handling stress, John? I've struggled with it sometimes. I think the average person struggles with it quite a bit. Um, you know, and I think this year it's been a, a, a unique thing that we have had more stress this year than in years before that, you know, stress this year because of COVID, because of, uh, the issues with race relations, because of, um, what's going on with, with the election coming up, everything this year, uh, provides stress for people in the world. Um, you know, it just seems like this year stress has been at a, at an all time high. I mean, an all time, an all time high. It has been. What, what do you, how do you handle, how do you handle stress yourself? Last night you were, you're out there reporting football games. What time did you get in last night? I got home last night at midnight or no, about more like about 11. 11 o'clock. 11 so then you're yeah. up in the studio this morning, hard working, hard working young man, which is good running the studio, producing this show. You're probably up at like 6 a.m. coming in here. Yeah, just about. So you didn't get much sleep. You got some stress. So how are you going to deal with the stress? <laughs> sleep later. <laughs> <laughs> do, do a whole lot of nothing when I'm done here. <laughs> yes. You know You know what's something? You know how I tend to deal with stress, which is not always good? Food. Yeah, it's an easy way to do it. Ice cream. And, and you know where my weak spot is? Nine o'clock. It's like after everybody starts going to bed and then I'm sitting there looking at the television and I'm thinking about that ice cream or the chips. That's my moment of weakness. But they're saying that in order to handle stress, number one, 
Accept that stress is a part of life. Number two, keep problems in perspective. You know, just because you get a flat tire, it's not going to ruin the day. Number three, take care of your physical health. If you want to be stronger, you got to take care of yourself. Exercise. Number four, choose healthy coping skills. You know, you don't want to overload on the alcohol, junk food like I do uh, sometimes, uh, but, you know, get rid of the, some of those unhealthy vices and, uh, and get into exercise. It also says uh, social activity with solitude. Do you, do you take time to stay by yourself there, John? Solitude, examine your thoughts? Sometimes. I mean, it just depends. You know, I mean, sometimes you have time to sit with yourself and, and sometimes you don't. You, you make time where you can get time, right? And then it says, lastly, you acknowledge that everything in life is a choice. Everything that we do is a choice. So you can choose to have a positive attitude or you can choose a negative one. And I know you're choosing a positive attitude, John, because you're up last night working, reporting on games, and now you're back early this morning working in the studio. And you've been a great help, always producing a great show. Thank you for joining us today. This is David Held and signing off. Have a great day. Thank you.